Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Kim and Ilian from the short story Sunrise by Glenn Cook. And joining us for the discussion is returning guest, John Bell. Welcome back, John. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be back again. I am so glad to have you on and talking about this sci-fi story that has a high concept around it and starts to get into issues of uh, morality and what it means to be human. <laughs> it's uh, somewhat similar to, uh, at least in that abstract way, to what we talked about in the first half of our double record, Primer. Mm-hmm. These are going to drop probably over a month apart from each other. So for listeners, these aren't back-to-back. Uh, but there's some interesting overlaps in these two stories that I think we can dig into uh, as, as we talk about Sunrise. Yeah, it's one of those things where I didn't really think there was overlap, but then as soon as you start to dig deep, it's like, oh, there there actually kind of is between these. <laughs> Probably is for a lot of stories, but yeah. Mm-hmm. It's happened uh, periodically, like uh, Todd, beloved co-founder of the Protagonist Podcast, and I will uh, record an episode where we each just choose a short story that we like, and we we don't know what the other one has picked. And then once we start looking at them, we're like, oh, these are really like... <laughs> Lots of thematic overlap. <laughs> and it's, are we just primed to look for it? Because, uh, you know, we, we know kind of what we want to talk about the one that we picked, or is it really there in all these stories? It's, it's just interesting. So Sunrise is a short story by Glenn Cook that was published in 1973 and tells the story of inhabitants of a planet that has a very slow orbital rotation so that day and night each last tens of thousands of years. A city is on the cusp of entering Sunside. And because of that, like very different uh, sides of the planet and also the proximity of the sun to the planet itself. Anything that enters Sunside is burned immediately. So the impending destruction of the city causes some existential angst that plays out in interesting ways. Um, so John, are you, have you read other Glenn Cook uh, texts besides Sunrise? Yes. Uh, that is essentially how I came to Sunrise. Um, I uh, initially read the black company um, mm-hmm. the, the first one, I liked that, uh, it's kind of a, uh, dark military fantasy series. Um, I haven't read all of them. Uh, I, I tend to, to read a series until I've run into one that I don't love. And then I lose interest, which has happened for a handful of series, including the, the black company, but I've read, I think six or seven of the black company novels. Um, I really liked, especially the original trilogy. And then, um, I was uh, moving a couple years ago. I usually don't do audiobooks um, for whatever reason. I, I have a hard time. Anyway, I usually don't do audiobooks, but we were moving and I was in the middle of reading the Harry Potter series for the first time. And I really wanted to finish the last Harry Potter book. So I signed up for Audible. I got the last Harry Potter book. I finished listening to it. Uh, and then I had one more credit and I was like, well, what am I going to use this for? Oh, I, and I stumbled on this thing from Glenn Cook. I was like, I like Glenn Cook. I'll, I'll get this with my Audible credit. And so I listened to, uh, I actually haven't even listened to this whole um, collection of short stories. That's how little I use my Audible app. I canceled it right <laughs> after we moved. Um, but I stumbled upon this one. And um, just, yeah, the, there's a couple of really interesting concepts in this short story, both the, the, the physical concept of an extremely slow rotating planet with a sun that destroys everything it touches as kind of a sci-fi concept that I've never heard of before, as well as, you know, some other things that we'll get into that, that kind of stuck with me. And so even though I really only listened to it once, I was like, I like this short story. And when you asked me if anything that I wanted to talk about, I was like, this short story kind of stuck with me even for a couple years. I would, I wouldn't mind revisiting that. Well, I'm glad you did. I have not read any Glenn cook. I think I've like, if I'd been asked to name sci-fi authors or fantasy authors, I don't think I ever would have said his name, but mm-hmm. once I saw it, I was like, I know I've seen his name at bookstores. Yeah. Like I've seen, I've seen his stuff there. Um, yeah. He's, and- he's, I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not an expert on sci-fi fantasy authors, but he's, I, I don't think he's a top tier fame and money author, but he's definitely, He's definitely got a following too, you know, and, and he has a presence because he's put out so many books. I was impressed mm-hmm. <laughs> looking at his output. I'm like, oh, he, he's kind of prolific. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so some trivia about uh, Sunrise. It was published in Eternity Science Fiction in 1973, and it's included in the best of Glenn Cook. And that's the Audible collection that you had told me was where you had it. So I just downloaded that yep. um, as well. And it had a little intro before the story starts where he says, this is in the same universe as the Starfisher series. I didn't know what that meant. Uh, I, I don't either. <laughs> um, I, I went and looked it up, uh, but he, he says, and I thought this was really interesting as an author. He did not remember anything about this story before rereading it to compile the anthology of his short stories, but included it because it was cool. Uh, <laughs> and I just love the idea of an author. Like, ah, I don't know, which I mean, I I've not done any published fiction, but I have done some academic writing and essay writing where sometimes I go double check something that I wrote, you know, maybe that was published a decade ago and I'm reading. And I'm like, Oh, that, I don't remember writing that <laughs> a mm-hmm. paragraph, but I kind of like the insight I landed on it, That's kind of cool, but I, I would not have been able to say that I wrote that, you know, just if someone had asked me. Yeah. I appreciated so that I as well. And the, the kind of like lost in your own memory, something that you made. Yeah. I appreciate that as well. Um, I, I'm not an author. I don't ever really aspire to be, uh, but I'm, I'm a software developer. And sometimes people at my job will be like, Oh, you, you did this thing. You wrote this code. What does it do? I'm like, ah, that was years ago. I mean, it's, and it's not even, not even uh, 30 years ago. Like this was, it's like, that was last year. I don't remember. Let's go see. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's go take a closer look. Cause I definitely yeah. need a refresher on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's really interesting that he chooses this to be like the lead of the best of Glenn Cook when he didn't even remember it. <laughs> you know that, it, <laughs> that was written. You would think if if this is like your omnibus collection of the best of, like it's going to be the stuff that won awards. It's going to be the stuff that really resonated with you as an author that you've heard enough feedback about, uh, you know, from from readers that it's really present in mind. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet, you know, according to him, he's like, I, I kind of forgot this existed and what it was. <laughs> um, and yet, like you, I think this is one of those ideas that's going to stick with me forever, where I'm going to like keep thinking back to like oh, the very slow turning planet and like mm-hmm. the the vision of apocalypse on the horizon. Like as you see the sun on the horizon, like you actually see sun for the first time, you know, once that actually crosses to where I'm at, it's burning us up and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a really cool concept. The only thing that I can remember in my sci-fi reading that's somewhat similar is Timothy Zahn did something um, like unto it in one of his Star Wars novels uh, mm. with like Lando Calrissian mining on a planet, but it had a much faster rotation where like the, the mining trucks had to like keep on the night side uh, and they had, they had to keep moving. Anytime one like had a, uh, you know, anything that broke down, it's like, you got to get that fixed in the next 10 minutes or abandon it <laughs> because we oh. are, <laughs> we're spinning fast on the night side or everything's going to be burned up. Yeah, I, I um, probably have read that Timothy Zahn. I don't know, maybe not. I've read several Timothy Zahn Star Wars books, but it's been a long time. I don't remember that, but it would work well in Star Wars too if it was faster moving. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's such a different feel than like the uh, just the dread and the uh, you know that you, you feel, and also like this frustration that at, at least I as a reader or listener was feeling. <laughs> These people like watching Death Cubbing and just kind of like accepting it for various reasons that we'll get into when we get to the summary. Mm-hmm. Um, Glenn Cook, the author, he served in the U.S. Navy from 1962 to 72. Then he worked on an assembly line at a General Motors, Motors plant. Uh, and he said that like it was kind of mind numbing work. So I just started making up stories in my head and he began to write on the side. And like early on in his career, he was starting to put out like three books, uh, you know, in a, in a single year. So that's a lot of writing on the side. I don't know at what point he left that job, but it, like with how much I saw that he's written, I think he, he had to become a full-time writer because uh, there is so much that he's done. Um, yeah, I, I think at least oh, by the early 80s, he was writing full-time, if not earlier than that. But if not, I don't, I don't know how he managed to do that because yeah. <laughs> there's just so much content. Uh, and you mentioned his Black Company series, and that's the first one that was listed like on his Wikipedia page or when I was Googling his name, Black Company was the first one that was coming up. Instead, it follows a group of soldiers in an epic uh, fantasy world. And it, at least according to what I saw Cook saying about it, it has found like a cult following amongst former military. Uh, And he credits that to his experience in the military, leading him to write characters that have resonated with soldiers and with people who kind of were more familiar with, uh, with that milieu, but he moves it into the fantasy world. Uh, But the characters still seem to resonate. Yeah. It's interesting. I really like that series and I recommended it to my brother who also likes sci-fi and fantasy novels and he didn't really like it. And he has been in the military. So 
Oh, well <laughs> I've heard the same thing that it resonated well with people in the military, but in but my not. anecdotal experience, it's <laughs> yes. the opposite. You have one contrary data point for us. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I was reading about it, I'm like, oh, I should recommend that to my brother who likes fantasy and also has been in the military. But uh, if I do, I'll I'll follow up with you, let you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what our next yeah, I'd be, personal I'd be interested. And then uh, the Starfisher series that this uh, short story is set in. Um, is a blend of Norse mythology, science fiction, and submarine warfare. At least that's the combination I saw uh, describing it. And from what I could read in a couple um, blog posts that people had written about this short story, um, they all acknowledge that he says it's set in that world, but they also say like it doesn't directly link to any narratives, characters, or settings <laughs> from the Starfishers. Uh, so it maybe just feels like it's it's on a planet that happens to exist in that universe, but it does not affect anything from those core stories. Yeah. I haven't read those, but this feels pretty self-contained. Yeah. Um, Like I didn't feel like I needed more. The only thing that maybe is uh, you, you could see being expanded is there's some references to like the makers of the planet. Like, is there a greater Mm -hmm. mythology within the sci-fi world? Mm -hmm. Um, But that's also one of those lines that could just be that person's personal religion, you know, or something like that. Yeah. And not necessarily, um, you know, a, a seed, you know, like uh, George Lucas throwing in a reference to the clone wars uh, in a new hope and <laughs> seeing that seed sprout into, you know, like a whole television series later on. Mm-hmm. All right. Before we move on to the summary, we want to thank you for downloading this episode. And we also want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast and all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So on to the summary of this uh, short story, which was much more straightforward than your summary of primer. Uh, the setting of the story is on a planet where each day is 25,000 years Uh, And Kim is a man who is 1,800 years old, and he's immortal, living in a 10,000-year-old city that is approaching the line between day and night. So they call them humans in the story, right? Or is it just mortals? I'm trying to remember if I use the word human. I actually don't remember for sure, but it seems pretty clear that they're humans, not aliens. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure they say humans in the story. They talk about about colonization, so so, yeah. We'll go with humans. Yeah. Um, They can live in completely enclosed cities on the night side of the planet, but as soon as the city crosses into the day side, the city will be completely destroyed by the intense heat of the sun and all its inhabitants will die. And for whatever reason, the cities are now completely enclosed and there's no effort to escape. It is when it is your time to go. (laughs) <laughs> it will be your time to go. And there's a couple of reasons that we do get. I say for other reason. There's two distinct ones that we're given. Um, we learn that humans can take a drug that will make them immortal. But as they become immortal, they lose all sense of emotion and they become addicted to this drug. And Kim has spent uh, his 1800 years writing a song. But now that his days are coming to an end, he's in a rush to finish that song. But that's it. He's not in a rush to survive. He doesn't really care. Like it's almost um, like a, a conscious catatonic state that yeah. the immortals seem to be entering. It's uh, it's more of a symphony than a song, as I understand right. it. But but mm-hmm. still, yes, he's been working on it for hundreds of years, and no real rush to finish. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, like now it's about to end. I should finish it, but also it's not like he's sitting down and madly writing <laughs> at any point in the story. It's like, oh, I should do that before the sun comes, and and end of his thought. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and we learn that most immortals dedicate themselves to an art form and will spend years, decades, centuries trying to perfect a work of art. Um, as uh, Kim looks out on the horizon, he can see the light side coming. And he sees things he's never seen before, which, as he says, makes living as long as he has worth it because there are still new things to see and experience. Um, but it's like, he also says, like, this is the first new thing I've seen in a thousand years, <laughs> I think, or something along those lines. Um, let's see. Within the enclosed city, there are also people who are not who are not taking the immortal drug, but they are sun cultists who are ensuring that nobody will attempt to leave the city before it is destroyed because they are themselves, everyone, the city and all its inhabitants are sacrifices to the sun god. And um, we meet a human girl who is not taking the immortality pill, 
but is also not a sun cultist. She is named Ilian. She comes to speak to Kim. She is 20 years old. Uh, and th- it, like it's implied that she could take the immortality pill now and she would be 20 forever, right? That's mm-hmm. what we're supposed to take from this. Yeah, it, it mentions that specifically, that she, she hasn't yet decided to start. Mm-hmm. And we also are told that they had a possibility of some kind of flirtatious relationship, but Kim is so flat in his affect. I don't know what that relationship would have been, uh, but he does have a personal connect- connection to Ilian, uh, more so than anyone else. Yeah, so it says that she, they they were had the potential of being coupled, uh, and like you said, they're the immortals, and and Kim is the only one that we know specifically. Their emotions are so flat; it's hard to imagine that. But Kim is a little bit upset that um, Ilian's brother and her family prevented them from being coupled. Uh, And they say it's because Ilian is a dancer and Kim is a musician and dancers and musicians are not allowed to be romantically involved. It seems like a natural pairing, though. (laughs) I don't know what's happening in this society. (laughs) We we can mention this a little bit later, but I think it's one of those things that's supposed to make us think like, oh... There are other types of romantic pairs that some people say are unnatural, but if you stop and think about it, there's no reason why. <laughs> right. Uh, or maybe like a little bit of a, a callback to like a Montague Capulet situation, you know, something along mm-hmm. those lines. Yeah, there's, there's a few different ways we could definitely uh, approach that. Um, the idea of like forbidden love is yeah. not unique <laughs> to, to, to this story. But it also, I mean, it's here, but it's not a huge point uh, yeah. to the story either. So, I mean, and, and one of the other things that I was kind of left with is like, he's 1800 years old. I think a 20 year old should not be dating. <laughs> <1800-year-old man. laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, there's a couple things that are. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Ilian says that the sun cultists have killed her brother because he tried to escape to join the nomads who are humans who are rumored to live in moving vehicles that keep them forever on the night side. Kim uh, knows that Ilian's brother was killed. He doesn't care. Again, the immortality pill. Yeah, <laughs> like the amount of care that this man is giving off is very minimal. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't like the Sun Cult, so there is that. But he does plan to die in the only city he has ever lived in. So he doesn't think the Sun Cults uh, cultists are like onto anything. He does not uh, subscribe to their beliefs, but he also is not going to get too worked up about st- stopping them. Mm-hmm. So the immortals, however, would actually still know the codes to open the doors to get out of the city, but they are like borderline catatonic and accepting of their fates and have no interest in actually escaping the city. So it doesn't matter that they're the only, that they remember the codes to open the doors. Um, Ilian's brother was caught like just trying to button mash <laughs> the code into the door and be able to escape. And that's when the sun, sun cultist um, uh, sentenced him to death. Ilian sees that there is a tractor outside of the city, which is evidence that these nomads, these rumored nomads are likely real and waiting to see if anyone will be able to get out of the city. And she wants to reach that uh, tractor, but Kim refuses to help her. Ilian talks with her cousin, Marco about trying to escape the city. Marco, Marco tells her that if Kim stops uh, taking his immortality drug, he may start feeling emotions again. Uh, they, I mean, they have a matter of days before they're going to die. So they plan to replace Kim's immortality drug, which seems to be like a daily dose that has to be taken with a placebo. I think it is powdered sugar. <laughs> it's what they're going to replace mm-hmm. it with. Uh, and hope that he becomes scared of death and wants to get out of the city. Uh, so Ilian does this. She replaces Kim's drugs. And he does quickly start to begin to experience feelings that make him uncomfortable. He notices that he cares some about other people. And he feels guilt about not helping. And he also has a growing concern about what's going on. Also, he realizes the song or the uh, symphony that he's been working on for centuries is awful. I mean, at best, it'd be called mediocre. But it really is not good. Uh, and he's dedicated centuries to this. And he realizes, I do not have the talent. And I certainly did not have the drive to become better through work. <laughs> And effort um, on, on the symphony. So he goes to find Ilian. Ilian and Kim go and hide from the cultists and make a plan to escape the city with several other um, humans who are, um, are not yet taking the immortality drug. So Ilian um, 
does feel guilt that she has not weaned her father off of the immortality drug too, but it's too late to begin that process and make him want to join them. To escape the city, they need to wear these old suits that were for maintenance outside of the city. Several other humans have joined uh, Ilian in their plan to escape the city. Marco is there too. Marco gives Kim a suit to wear and asks him to open the gate to go outside, but Kim looks at his suit and says this one is faulty and he will die as soon as he steps out of the city wearing the suit. And then when he looks at it more closely, he realizes the suit da- the suit's damage is not from age, it was actively sabotaged by Marco. And this makes Kim suddenly feel a wave of intense anger at Marco. And he attacks him and incapacitates Marco and takes Marco's suit, which would not have been damaged, uh, and then leaves Marco behind him as he, Ilian, and the other mortals leave the city and enter the tractor. They watch as the city, the only home they've known, is destroyed by the sun. The humans in the tractor give everyone immortality drugs as they drive into the night side. The end. Hmm. Well done. Good summary of the, with a few interjections by me. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. Interjections are standard. <laughs> You've listened to very many episodes of this podcast. Hard, hard to avoid them. Um, I was, I will just say like, it, it was a pretty straightforward story. There are a few things at the end that like left me thinking. So, I mean, we already mentioned like the, the big idea of the, of the slow moving planet and the, the, you know, this thousands of year old city that is just slowly entering uh, the sun side and being destroyed. That's a really interesting concept. But then at the end, when it almost as a throwaway line says like the humans had given them uh, that, you know, ha- had handed out the pills and Ilian is saying something about them being together forever. Like, Oh, like, so hmm, <laughs> what are we yeah. supposed to take or, you know, take away from the idea of immortality and emotion and how vital that is to what it means to be human. Uh, and, and, and like this whole concept of immortality and the flattening that it gives Kim and the other immortals, that's a really interesting concept. We don't delve into it super deeply in this short story because I mean, on audible, I think it takes an hour to listen to the story maybe, um, at one X. Um, but it, it does leave enough that's there that I think I'm going to ponder that for a while. (laughs) Some of those ideas. What I want to take away from it. <laughs> what I how I want the story to end is they both decide that no, it's not worth it. I, but I don't know how they would come to that realization. That's just kind of how I wanted it to, to happen. But but one of the last lines I mean, Alien says is something about like being together forever. Yeah, <laughs> like forever. It, it's one of her last words, and it, then it mentions that they've been given the the drugs. Yep. I I wish Ilian would say like come clean, like hey. <laughs> you've been feeling these emotions because I took away your drugs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Maybe, maybe uh, we should not, but then at the same time, it's complicated because it also implies that if Kim doesn't take the drugs, he will die soon. It's not like, it's not like he will resume his life where he was whenever he started taking them. We don't really hear that, but presumably it was sometime in his early adult life. Um, and it's not like he resumes life immediately there. It says, yeah, it basically tells us he will age rapidly and die. So, yeah, it's uh, I would hesitate to call it a happy ending. <laughs> they they ride <laughs> off away from the sunset <laughs> or sunrise. I mean, <laughs> yes. I guess it in a, in a way yeah, toward, is they're headed towards the towards sunset. The sun. <laughs> yeah, so we'll just take them a while there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, de- definitely not happy and very ambiguous as to what we're supposed to take away from it, but raising some really interesting ideas. Um, And one of those ideas that stood out to me is that with this sense of immortality, it really flattens who, who the immortals are. They, they lose their sense of emotion, their sense of purpose. The the purpose is that they give themselves they don't seem actually terribly invested in <laughs> right mm-hmm. uh, like we're told all of they're all working on great art but from what we're shown like they're not actually very good at it and they're not trying to get better they're not like studying it they're not um you know invested in making this literally the best symphony that's ever been because i have ten thousand years to write the symphony mm-hmm. it is just something to do and if there was honest appraisals as we find out there it's pretty mediocre yeah, that's kind of one of my questions. It mentions that as he is getting his emotions back, he realizes it's bad. And then he encounters some fellow musicians um, that kind of politely ask him about his symphony. And 
then he feels like they're being condescending to him. Like they're like, just mm-hmm. being like, Oh yeah, it's Kim. He's got that mediocre symphony. We'll smile and nod. And that's how he feels. But it makes me think that they're not actually being condescending. They're actually just as emotionally stunted as he is. And they just don't mm-hmm. care either. And yep. so every that's symphony, what I got from it too. every symphony on this planet is probably mediocre to bad, but nobody cares. <laughs> yeah. And that idea, it made me think of, um, I, I know I mentioned this in our last episode about Primer, that, or no, I mentioned Lost. Um, I also have watched The Good Place with my my daughter, uh, which gets into some really interesting theor- philosophical ideas. And mm-hmm. one thing that gets acknowledged near the end of The Good Place um, comes from one of the philosophy consultants they had on the show named Todd May, who is um, a philosopher that has r- written a book about death where he argues that um, that mortality actually gives life and order uh, or, or order to our life and, and makes life meaningful. The fact that there is an end point and that with, if it was true immortality, our life would lose any sense of order, which the good place definitely engages in like an exploration mm-hmm. of that particular idea. Um, but there are counter arguments to that. So one of the other philosophy consultants they had who has a cameo in the show is Pamela uh, Hieronymi. And um, she argues that um, like if w- one of the, the quotes they use in the show in the good place is as a Scanlon quote that working out the terms of moral justification is an un- unending task. And so if you had eternity to actually work on an unending task you might actually be able to accomplish it um and that uh and in the good place you see some of her point of view uh presented in a character like tahani who uses eternity to keep exploring new things and improving herself and gaining more uh but there are others who see that there needs to be an endpoint uh in order for any of this to have meaning and to to instead of continuing on as an individual to become one with like the universe is, is the way that the show presents it. Uh, and that idea seems to be present in here, uh, which Todd May's like book about death, like that, that is within the last 20 years, I'm pretty sure. So well before, <laughs> um, uh, or, or this short story is well before that, but that idea of like, what would immortality like do to someone's sense of like existential identity <laughs> is, is an interesting one to think about in fiction. And this mm-hmm. book presents an, an intriguing argument that it would really maybe not be great <laughs> for uh, for long-term development to actually have all the time in the world to be able to do something. Yeah. I mean, it takes it there. I mean, there's kind of two things going on. There's immortality and then the, um, uh, I don't know what you would call it, malaise or lack of emotions. Of the, yeah. I mean, I guess you you could make the argument that it sounds like some philosophers would that that if you had eternity but you still had your same emotions and wits that um, you know that could be productive and good and you could still uh, make a good symphony or whatever it may be you know um, and but it is a very interesting question that even if even if the story didn't say that losing your emotions was a side effect of this immortality drug. I feel like you could still get to the point where you're it's, it's the same thing, you know, you like, he, mm-hmm. like he says at the beginning, like, Oh, this is the first new thing I've seen in a thousand years. Well, that's cool. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's exciting. Yeah. I've not been excited for a thousand years though, because this is exciting <laughs> seeing that new thing. I mean, I think about it in my own life. Um, you know, I joke about that. Like a deadline is my muse to actually like, get my writing done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I need to have that pressing endpoint. And if it was just like, I could sit in my office all day, I think I could generate ideas, but like to actually accomplish the act of like finishing the book, I kind of need the publisher saying, Hey, here's when we need the book. Um, or like the opposite of that is like when you you know that week between Christmas and New Year's when like everyone kind of forgets what a schedule is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that might be what immortality would start to feel like, and that is not my most productive time. <laughs> I make some good memories with my kids, right? <laughs> you know, that's that's something. Yeah. There's uh, a there's a ton okay. of value in having that from mm-hmm. time to time where you yes. don't have a deadline. 
but I agree with you that it's more, I think people are happier when they have a goal in mind and that goal has some type of uh, deadline attached, maybe not a deadline all the time, but some type of um, thing that pushes you to get it done. Um, because well, if even you don't... like uh, artists, I, I can't remember what director it was, but I, I still remember the quote, like a film is never finished. It's abandoned <laughs> when <laughs> the studio needs it. Uh, you know, it's you can't actually finish it. I've heard, heard authors talk about the same thing. Like, oh, I, you know, I could have revi- revised this another 20 times, but I had a deadline with my publisher. Uh, mm-hmm. And so my, you know, my narrative story went out or or um, even sometimes after that deadline passes, you can see artists who tinker like George Lucas with star Wars. Like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to change the scene a little bit 20 years later. Cause it wasn't quite right. Uh, but imagine if he had never had to release it because the studio had contracts and it had to go out. What if he was really given that ability to just sit there and tinker until he felt it was perfect and then ready to be seen. Would it actually keep improving or would it just kind of sit <laughs> for, uh, I don't know. I, I, yeah, it, it's an interesting question that gets raised by this story. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because uh, you have to get something out sometime, and some people some people can do that for themselves, give themselves a deadline. I feel um, like Brandon but, Sanderson is someone who could do that. <laughs> he sure seems some like it. Uh, Kickstarter <laughs> news <laughs> involving Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not one if, of those people. Though. <laughs> if you if you don't have something that you're shooting for, then they might not achieve much <laughs> even, even if you're then, immortal like uh i mean kim is shooting for something right he, he's trying uh, yeah. to make an epic uh orchestral composition he just doesn't feel a pressing need to actually finish it it seems even when death is imminent yeah um, he's uh, i guess uh I would maybe say he's not really shooting for it. Like he, he says he's working on it, mm-hmm. but <laughs> it's like, it, it, I mean, we follow him through the whole story and it's like, it says like he picks up his flute and he does an arpeggio and then he puts it down. It's yeah. like, oh, what's, what's the, uh, the, the definition for the, the 10,000 hours, uh, concept. Um, it's like dedicated practice the, or something. The Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell. You de- it, people confuse it thinking you just need to do a thing for ten thousand hours, but what he actually argues is that you need ten thousand hours of. I think it's deliberate practice, is what he says. Mm. Where you can't, you know, you you can't play the piano and play the same song for ten thousand hours and then be an accomplished pianist. You have to actually have a plan and build on your skills for those ten thousand hours, and that has to that deliberate practice drives you to be an expert in that thing and it sounds to me like kim and the other immortals are not anywhere close to having deliberate practice they've got the 10,000 hours but it's just kind of scattered whatever no uh no motivation to really sit down and do the thing deliberately i Absolutely agree with everything you just said. And I think it's a really good insight into um, some of the the differences between what it is to, um, you know, to to gain experience versus to become a master at something um, like uh, and, and I think there's a line even where he said Kim says that he could play another composer's work fine <laughs> yeah you know maybe not the most moving but he, he could play another composer's work but he's realized as he's coming off this this drug that he wasn't writing anything. Basically I wasn't writing anything that was worth playing. Um, so he has yeah. some level of skill that's come through this experience, uh, but just certainly does not seem to have made him a master. Yeah. And that also kind of raises the thing. Like there's often the talk about how uh, great art needs emotion with it. And if your emotion has been stunted by drugs, can you make great art? I don't know that I buy that argument completely. I think a lot of making great art is practice deliberate practice um with some emotion to it as well but that's it's an interesting thought that how much of the immortals lack of ability to make something great is their lack of emotion yeah that that idea of like feeling the emotion to make art it feels like the romantics um you know like 
like the romantic movement of art, not mm-hmm. romantic stories per se. Uh, you know, and their idea of like the the muse and um, you know that the the works almost spill out of them because the, the it, it's a spontaneous overflow of emotion. Is mm-hmm. I think it's Coleridge who says that. Um, and even in that era, you have the counterpoint coming from Edgar Allan Poe with the theory of composition, where it's like it's just sitting down and revising everyone. <laughs> like that's what makes <laughs> that's what makes writing good is uh, putting in all the effort and thinking deliberately about every word choice, every character beat, every revelation of plot. It, is that all making a unity of effect on the reader? Uh, and I think most uh, Poe says like other romantic artists writing like me right now would would like wince if the world saw all the rough drafts <laughs> that we go through before we, we write a story. Um, and so there's that, that, that blend where, I mean, there, there clearly are people who are just talented, right? Like there, it, it does feel like there's sometimes a spontaneous talent that comes out of uh, particular individuals, but there also is that hard work that has to hone that. Uh, I, I think you, you need some mix of the two to become successful. Um, and in this instance, with immortality before them in thousands of years, uh, it feels like people are squandering whatever talent they had <laughs> and not putting in enough work <laughs> yeah. uh, in order in order to achieve great art. Yeah. It says um, it says everything is automated to the nth degree in their city. And so and it, I think it says that all the opportunities for work are booked out for years with a waiting list for people that want to do them, <laughs> which I thought was another interesting concept. You know, everybody can pursue whatever leisure or artistic creative pursuits they want, but nobody can do any work. And uh, I think there's a little bit of truth to that as well, that, that, you know, you, you need to, I think to be fulfilled as a human you need to do some work. Maybe it's not as much work as, uh, you know, s- some societal influences would have us believe, but or <laughs> some amount of the case, like pre-union yeah. work schedules. We don't need those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think we're going in the right direction in terms of number of hours in the day that uh, the average person needs to work for money. <laughs> but there, I, I, there also is, I think, an unhealthy aspect of, like always having a side hustle going on and monetizing every hobby, right? That it's not worth doing if you can't monetize it is definitely a, a, you know, an attitude that some people have. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, I, things just feel imbalanced in the short story. And I think that's something we're seeing, you know, depending on where you're looking, like, is it imbalanced too far in, uh, not having any work to do, uh, or do sometimes we get imbalanced of like everything is work or, yeah. or should be work, or there's no uh, like moral reason to, to do it. Like, like it also sometimes like the idea of work becomes tied in with morality and ethics in ways that I'm not always comfortable with. Um, I think mm-hmm. there's importance in leisure <laughs> um, and it's okay to have a show that you just watch, <laughs> you know, th- things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, absolutely. or hobbies that you just do that you're not trying to monetize. I hadn't thought of hustle culture as being the opposite end of the spectrum from the immortals who don't do anything, but I think you're right (laughs) that those are both good examples of the extremes that are out of balance and not healthy. And you need to have a balance where you have leisure, where you can be creative and you also do some work that maybe Mm -hmm. isn't like what you would choose to do. If you said like, what do I want to do for fun? but it's still good for you to do uh, just not to the extent that hustle culture people would have you believe. <laughs> <laughs> and even there are things that um, like, I love, you know, everything you can find on Etsy, but sometimes like I see the way people are like promoting their own Etsy shops. I'm like, I don't think you enjoy doing this anymore. <laughs> like this, <laughs> this, this craft that I think you became good at because you were finding some sense of um, individual f- fulfillment has become that hustle <laughs> that you're feeling you have to earn a profit off of to such a degree that it, it seems to be taking away some of the joy that maybe could have been inherent to it before. Yeah. That's, Etsy is an interesting example because Etsy has turned in. To, uh, it's not even all craft stuff anymore. It's, it's been info. It's almost like a second eBay at this point where people mm-hmm. are just reselling stuff that 
they didn't even make. Um, I think that's a good example of the the same type of influence. Yeah. Changing something that, that was like, oh yeah, here's, here's, you can make a little bit of money from the thing that you genuinely enjoy doing has been taken over by let's just make money. Yeah. This is a career now Yeah, <laughs> uh, to do this. Um, another interesting thing that the story mentions several times um, is the fact that these people called the immortals are not immortal. <laughs> um, and I, it has to be a deliberate choice from cook because it's, it's definitely in there at the beginning and end the idea that even if we escape the sunside apocalypse, our star is going supernova. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if we're trying to be immortal, like we're not going to outlive our son. It's just not an option. Yeah. Uh, I mean, clearly they, they've, it mentions they colonized this planet. It doesn't say anybody has gotten off the planet recently, but I would assume that space travel is a thing in this mm -hmm. universe. And so maybe they could go off the planet, but, but yeah, that's they They, it seems like they can live. They won't ever die of natural causes is what I take away from it. Yeah. Or if they will die of natural causes, it won't be for uh insanely long amount of time. Cause <laughs> there's no implication that it's happening. <laughs> yeah. Right. But yeah, but at the same time, even if they're immortals, it, it is pointed out that it's going to come to an end somehow, whether it's, they get trapped in the city because the sun cultists won't let them leave or the sun goes supernova or, you know, everybody would die by an accident eventually. I th would think, um, mm. although we are, we are told uh, more or less that, there hasn't been violent crime in the city for ever. I don't remember exactly what it says, but essentially when, uh, when Kim incapacitates Marco, <laughs> everybody is just shocked because nobody has ever even heard of anything like that happening. Uh, everybody, the, the half a dozen people that are there, <laughs> it sounds like it would be shocking either way, but no, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what the story said. It was interesting to me that, that it talks about that the violent crime not really existing. Would that be an acceptable trade-off if nobody had any emotions was the thought that it gave to me. And I, again, I, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, violent crime is awful, but if everybody was they're they're almost like zombies. Yeah. It, it, it's such an interesting mix that we get because it's, on the one hand, it feels like the kind of story that is um, like taking place in a utopia when you're told like there's there's no death, uh, mm -hmm. no violent crime. Uh, but the, yeah, I mean, it, this is hardly unique in, in showing some sort of underbelly. But the underbelly isn't necessarily like the corruption of the upper class. <laughs> it is like the loss of humanity is mm -hmm. a lot of what the underbelly is. But it's also a utopia that's facing an apocalypse in this story. And one way that we learn about the loss of the humanity is the complete disregard that they have for impending doom and destruction. Um, you know, that's supposed to represent that there is something that has become innately wrong with the immortals uh, in that, that they're just accepting that. Okay, well now's our end. We're the ones that actually have the means to escape. <laughs> like we know the codes on the door mm -hmm. and yet uh, they're unwilling to walk downstairs and punch in the code on the door. I just remembered that in that first conversation between Kim and Ilian, Kim said, or Ilian says something to Kim to the effect of like, don't, wouldn't you rather live than die? Like you're an immortal. Don't you want to keep living? And Kim's like, well, a life as a nomad would be worse than death, you know, in the city that I've always lived in. And it's just like, ah, Wow. Uh, I mean, I know your emotions are stunted. You don't really appreciate your own life at this point, but are you really to the point where moving on somewhere new with some other people that you don't know, they clearly look down on, like you're saying those people's lives aren't even as valuable as your death. Like that's, uh, <laughs> it's a, pretty rough thing to think, even if it's induced by your immortality drugs. Do you think, uh, like we're not really told much about why he thinks living with the nomads would be worse. Is it because it would be so different than the completely automated life that he experienced that he can't even imagine finding 
I mean, I don't want to say like pleasure and enjoyment because I don't get the sense that he's having much pleasure and enjoyment uh, in, yeah. his, in his current life. But why is it so repulsive to him, do you think? It, it, I get the sense that he is in a canyon-sized rut from being immortal and doing the same thing for thousands of years. Like, you know, we all get in ruts. Um, mm-hmm. And it's sometimes hard to change. And it feels like he's so stuck in this rut and so unable to think of anything new. It's that I don't know that he, yeah, I guess uh, I, as I'm talking this out, I'm, I'm a little bit changing my mind that he doesn't necessarily look down on the nomads or the nomads life that much, but he just can't fathom change, even if it will save his life because he is in the grand Canyon of ruts. <laughs> I like that idea um, of the grand Canyon rut. Cause I think like we all enjoy being comfortable, but sometimes mm-hmm some discomfort is necessary for progression. <laughs> like, like comfort can lead to a plateau. And, uh, I mean, I, I guess I've just reversed your metaphor. <laughs> of, of a size run. Um, but you know, the, the, in terms of like no more progression taking place, uh, you know, you, you just kind of plateau, uh, when you get too comfortable and that's something we see in our lives on a much smaller scale than what this short story, like everything is so hyper exaggerated uh, in, in, in the scale of time that we're, we're given in the story. Um, But I think most of our listeners could probably think of a time where what they were doing was fine and comfortable, but a change needed to take place for any progression, but also that, that change can be uh, like, it is, completely uncomfortable <laughs> to go do something new it's not fun necessarily yeah. to go do something new always i mean I, I, there are probably some people for whom like the idea of like the next great adventure and the next uh you know inspiring discomfort <laughs> is a thing uh but i don't mind being comfortable it's it's pretty nice mm-hmm. <laughs> it's preferable uh but also it can become a rut like you're saying i didn't mean to completely reverse your geographic metaphor <laughs> from a <laughs> to a plateau that's fine <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that is funny, but I, I think, I think we arrived at something that I didn't even think about going into this discussion that that is a good thing to take away from this story that to an extent, we're all going to have those times where we need a push or it's, we need to either have an external push or push ourselves to, uh, be outside of our comfort zone in order to grow. Um, all these immortals are in such a big rut that they're willing to just let the sunny side of the planet kill them. Um, and from what if, we get, other cities have done the exact same thing. Just yeah. accepted destruction as it rolls over them. I think this is, they said this is the last city of mm-hmm. the planet. So aside from the nomads, they're the only ones left that from the initial colonization. And Kim remembers watching the previous city get destroyed. He said, I think he says that's the last time he was outside the city walls was to watch the destruction of the previous city, which is another kind of morbid thing. Like, Hey, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, I'm going to go watch the destruction of the next city over. They're probably all stunted emotionally too. And are just going <laughs> to get burnt up. It'll be fun. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's something new to watch, right? The destruction of, uh, of an entire city. Yeah. It's, it's new. And after 10,000 years, he needs something new. Or however long, he's 1,800 years. The city was 10,000 years old. He was only 1,800 yeah. years old. I think. <laughs> yeah. um, I think there's, oh, this this short story, I, the more we talk about it, the more I like it. And the more I think that the, that is there. And it makes me want to go engage with some more Glenn Cook. Because um, I... I haven't read any of his stuff. Um, but if this short story that he kind of forgot that he had even written <laughs> is uh, this rich, I, I think he, he, he has some talent. There's a reason that he was able to publish as many books he has, as he's been able to. Uh, and uh, it's, it's that blend of, of hard work and talent. We were just talking about a little bit ago. Well, like I said, I enjoyed the black company series, but it's clearly not for everybody because my brother who I usually share pretty similar tastes with I was like, yeah, it's okay. I probably won't read anymore. <laughs> um, one uh, thing I did want to acknowledge is that like, there's a couple of moments in this story where I'm like, ah, 
that might be a little bit sexist. Um, <laughs> specifically, you mentioned that uh, Ilian is 20, and it says, like, Ilian hadn't yet taken the immortality drugs, but um, she is 20, which would be a perfect age for a woman to remain forever. And I was like, uh, that uh, doesn't... Yeah, I, <sighs> I remember catching on that same line. like, And especially when we're not told Kim's age. Like, what age did he pause? Yeah, development at, um, yeah. Uh, I mean, we really we have as far as agentive characters, it really is Ilian uh, and Marco. It's... But but Marco's made it out to be a jerk, right? So yeah, uh, there is that uh, as far as positive. But yeah, there does seem to be just some casual, um, like the idea that like, well, the young woman's the only woman worth being. <laughs> seems to be. <laughs> Uh, you know, an attitude that you, you could pluck from this. Uh, Which there's I, not terribly many characters. So there's, I mean, there's almost no chance for the Bechdel test to be passed. Uh, I guess if Marco <laughs> had been a woman uh, and they talked about escaping there, we would have passed <laughs> um, the, the Bechdel test. But we, we really have, it's three speaking characters, is it, right? And like the, impl- or uh, maybe there's a couple people that have like some throwaway yeah. ones. Yeah. Uh, but a random encounter with a cultist and, but there's really but, only but three people like- that say anything of consequence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I don't, I just thought it was worth acknowledging. Um, I would like to think, you know, it's a 50 year old short story. Hopefully. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we've come somewhere in the last 50 years. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's definitely thought broking. It's not perfect. And there are some parts that you feel the age of, a little bit on it. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up then? Um, no, I don't think so. This is a, like, it's an interesting short story. This might be worth a read or a listen for anybody that's looking for something small and digestible to noodle on for a little while. But. Yeah, the uh, the Audible collection where it is the first uh, story in the Audible collection is called The Best of Glenn Cook, uh, and it's it looks like it has 18 short stories um, within it. Uh, I've only listened to this one so far, but I enjoyed the narrator uh, that, that was doing the reading. Uh, it's Kevin T. Collins. Uh, they did a good job, uh, and um, it, it was good enough that, I, like I said, I'll, I'll be uh, checking out some more Glenn Cook. Well, thank you, John, for recommending the story. That is going to wrap up this podcast episode. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Lofty, who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. media we've been consuming <clears throat> thought i could get through the whole thing <coughs> i couldn't i gagged <coughs>